Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs' Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher. I'm an associate professor at Clemson University, and I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. James Keneally, Vice President of Student Affairs at the University of North Georgia, and Michelle Eaton, Executive Director for Student Retention and Success, also at the University of North Georgia. Thanks for being the guest, our, our guest, my guest, the guest today. I appreciate you joining the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. So Jim and Michelle, before we get into your work and career, can you tell listeners a little bit about who you are outside of work? Hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to? And Dr. Keneally, if you'll start. Sure. Oh, that's out of work. Uh, a couple of things. One, I have two beautiful granddaughters that we try to spend time with. They live about 15 miles away. That's one of the reasons we came to Georgia. For fun, I fly. I'm a private pilot. I also fly uh, search and rescue for the Civil Air Patrol. And uh, it keeps me pretty happy. So engage outside the university, as an, and I do consulting um, in higher education. So those are some of the things that keep me happy. But uh, the family time is what I try to do, but that gets hard. <laughs> sure. All right, Michelle, how about you? Yeah, so I don't have much free time. And I say that because I'm currently in the writing stages of my dissertation. So research is what I do for fun. Um, But I do have five children outside of work and we live on a little mini farm and we just recently um, acquired two emus. So we have cows, chickens, uh, emus, a pig and a turkey. And so that's a lot of fun. And that's where I get my therapy um, outside with the animals and my children. Wonderful. Um, How about a little bit about your journey? We'll shift now to the work, your journey into student affairs. And Michelle, if you would start. Sure. Thanks, Michelle. I started within admissions. So I began my career in undergraduate admissions not long after I graduated with my undergraduate degree. And throughout working here, I completed my master's and then, of course, started my doctoral program. Um, And through that journey, I realized that my passion is really in student retention and success. So I have been within enrollment management, really trying to manage um, our continuing student populations and, and retention of those students by creating programs and strategies for them to succeed and through this, um, through this endeavor, Dr. Keneally and I started an office called the Office for Student Retention and Success here at the University of North Georgia. And we work really closely with our academic affairs colleagues to develop um, and do a lot of research around programs and uh, initiatives and interventions to help students be retained and persist from semester to semester. And we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Wonderful. And Jim, how about you? Uh, I've been in higher ed over 40 years. Um, obviously, I've had a great career, um, very involved with the SACSA, obviously, the uh, SACSA organization. Really started out as a hall director and worked my way up all the way. Uh, been a VP for student affairs and enrollment at two different institutions, been president of two different universities, one all, uh, all female. Catholic University, one a regional state college. So it's it's been a good career, but um, I guess the biggest thing for me and, and Michelle, you know, notice is really working with the young professionals, trying to help young professionals develop as we work with the students and 
Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but uh, it's really been a passion of mine. I did take a year off and serve the superintendent of Catholic schools and uh, realized that that was not my passion. And <laughs> uh, But it, it's been a wonderful ride, and uh, we'll see, what, see where it goes from here. You say you took a year off. I bet it didn't feel like a year off the whole time. So. 15 schools in 50 counties. Wow. Okay. Well, we're glad you're back on this side of education. One last question before we kind of get to the topic of the day. We always talk about how small student affairs is. And so I think it's always interesting if listeners can hear who were some key figures in your experiences. Um because they may have some of those same connections and it it just kind of helps us feel like a little closer community. So would you each share who have been some of those people for you in and around uh, student affairs in higher education? Well, for me, it's been real, I've been really blessed. Every institution I worked at, you know, obviously you have your, your challenges, but, you know, I remember all the way back when as a hall director at Northern Iowa, um, uh, Bob Hartman, who was my supervisor, you know, great, really got me off into profession in a great way. Uh, Ron Taylor, Emory University, who I still keep in contact with, uh, taught me a lot about leadership, a lot about managing people. And uh, Janetta Cross Brazil and Lyle Gahn at University of Arkansas, um, great, eight excellent professionals, give me a lot of feedback. And Janetta uh, give me uh, words of wisdom that I take to this day. Um, you know, Francis Lucas Toucher, uh, you know, at EKU, great colleagues. And along the way, you have great mentors and supervisors. But one of the things that it really helps help me is the staff I've had the privilege of working with. You know, I've been really blessed to have some talented people. Claire Good, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Claire Good, Dr. Mike Regal. Uh, here I have Allison Paul, Dr. Paul, Dr. John Delaney, obviously Michelle Eaton and others. But that's been really a blessing um, because no matter what goes up above you in the politics, if you have a good st- staff and people who are really dedicated to what they're doing, it makes your job a lot easier. It makes your job more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And Mich- Michelle Bachan, as you know, I, I really love mentoring young professionals. And I, I think I lost count of 35 of undergraduate students that have gone into higher education that I, I feel like I had at least a small part of that. Great. Thank you for that. How about you, Michelle? Yeah, for me, um, besides my supervisor that's on the call today, Dr. Keneally, it definitely um, serves as a a very valuable mentor to me and has brought me where I am today. I also um, definitely think about my the the chair of my master's thesis that still serves as my mentor today, and that's Dr. Stephanie Foote. She's a vice president at the Gardner Institute, um, and she has expansive knowledge on student development theory, student transition, experimental pedagogy, but beyond her her amazing portfolio, she is one of the most genuine, generous higher education professional professionals that I have ever met to date. Um, and this per- this other person doesn't know who I am, but she serves as a big mentor in my life of Dr. Brown McNair. Uh, And I admire her so much and constantly go back to her research on transformation, student success, diversity, equity, and inclusion. She always gives such honest feedback and doesn't fear holding hard conversations. So I learn a lot about that from her, especially now 
in the post-pandemic era and in this this time of racial healing that we're currently in. Great. Well, thank you all for that, for setting the stage for us. Let's talk a little bit about um, if you could each, and you touched on this already a little bit, but if there are things you might want to add related to your background um, to the work on this model. So how did the two of you start to have these conversations and how did you decide to build the work? Well, when I came to University of North Georgia five years ago, uh, Michelle let me know that I was chair of the Student Success Task Force, which I didn't know for the first three months. Uh, so, And one of my first questions was, you know, how do we define student success? I think as, as people realize, you know, we have 3,400 uh, institutions of higher education in this country, and probably everyone has a different definition, even on your individual campuses. So we really needed a framework on how we're going to look at student success at the University of North Georgia. And in the larger as well, because uh, again, it, it's defined in so many different ways. And part of it too, and one of the things that Michelle and I are very passionate about is if you look at the journey that a student takes from the time they're recruited to the time they graduate, it should be a seamless journey. It should be a journey that the handoffs are very clean so students don't fall between the cracks. Uh, when we do accept a student to an institution, we have a moral obligation to help them be successful. Um, if we're not committed to that, we shouldn't be accepting them. So really trying to create a framework that everybody at the university can see themselves participate in. Because you will hear at times, well, that's not my job. Well, that's not my job. And as we know, retention and student success is everybody's job now. It could be seen differently. So the model we put together, one of the things I developed with the four pillars, and we defined it a little bit, really. And we used the the, the, um, the uh, pillar concept because it really support. Mm -hmm. If you think about, you know, uh, it's not a raceway, it's a support system. And we came up with and we've, we've uh, re refined it, redefined it. But the whole goal is that the four pillars can be used at any institution and working with the staff, faculty to say, how do we support our students within the financial stability or the academic achievement? Uh, so that that's how we came to framework. And um, But we were being very nebulous and very, well, student success. Okay, what do you mean? <laughs> how do we define it? So, and Michelle obviously is a great uh, professional and this being her passion, it was just a natural fit and hopefully we'll take it on the road. Great. Yep. Anything you would add, Michelle? No, I think Dr. Keneally did a beautiful job. All right, then. Why don't you, at this point, why don't you tell us about the model? So um, what are the pillars? And then how have you used it specifically at your institution? And how have staff and students responded to it? I'm, I'll talk about the four pillars, and i like Michelle to talk about some of the more specifics and you know, where we're at and where we're going. Uh, the first pillar is obviously academic achievement. Now, some people want to use the term excellence and others. Achievement is something that you easily define. Did they receive their degree or not? And have they been successful in the classroom? Um, so it's really the foundation. Hopefully they come to university because they want to get that degree, whether it's a two-year degree, four-year degree, whatever. So that that is one of the basis. 
The other is financial stability. As we know, cost of higher education has become more and more difficult or it's high. We pride ourselves at the University of North Georgia to be one of the most affordable institutions and our students graduate with some of the lowest debt in the, in the United States. But if students are worrying about credit card bills or all their bills or taking care of family or whatever, it's very hard for them to concentrate on their academic piece. So we work hard with a student money management program and others to build that financial stability. And it's not just why you're here, but how do you take these uh, skills and these techniques for lifelong success in managing money? The third is uh, health and well-being. Obviously, as we've seen, the mental health issues of our students have continued to grow. Uh, the more challenging students have come. I'm not sure if we have more students with mental health or we have students who are more willing to talk about their mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the whole, if you think about the wellness wheel, the wellness concept, a student who, you know, is physically okay, spiritually okay, uh, mental health and, and otherwise, you know, they're going to have a great opportunity to be successful. If they're worrying about illnesses or stress, depression, uh, it's very, very hard. So it's, you know, we've at the University System of Georgia and others have built a lot of significant support systems out there. And students do not leave institutions, mostly not for academics. They leave for the, the mental health issues, they leave for financial. And the last is sense of belonging and engagement. We all know the research shows that students who are engaged on campus with their faculty outside the classroom and others that find a home are going to be more successful. So how do we create a sense of belonging? How do we create students getting engaged? Post-pandemic, and, and, and uh, Michelle and I went to a, a program sponsored by ASCU a couple of weeks ago in uh, D.C. talking about student engagement post-pandemic because it, it we're, we're starting over in some ways because the students graduate high school uh, virtually and they started college virtually. So we're starting over on the engagement piece. We have more students who are uh, caregivers. They're they're taking care of families, kids, whatever. And that engagement has to look differently. But engagement is crucial. If they don't feel that they have a home, they don't feel that they have a connection to their institution, it's easier to walk away. So that engagement, that sense of belonging, I think is crucial. And how each institution does that is different. But Michelle can talk a little bit about where we're going from that perspective, but some of the things we've done here in her office is only not even a year old. I think we started August of last year and it's made tremendous strides. So, Yeah, and I appreciate, Dr. Keneally, the, the framework that you just provided and, and how you talk about it's such an individual approach to, to every single student. There's no one size fits all for, for any student across the board, whether we're looking at traditional students, non-traditional students, we're looking at students of color or any other, any other student types, first generation, we all have to look at the student as an individual and what their needs are, which is very difficult when times are changing very quickly in higher education and we only have them for four, four years. Um, but currently here at the University of North Georgia, you asked Michelle what, how we've used the model here. We're currently in the process of constructing what the four pillars look like at UNG. Of course, we've introduced the model systemically and cabinet level leaders are using it in a variety of ways. 
Um, in May, we're going to go around to campus stakeholders to articulate the model to garner feedback and formulate a vision of and a definition that can be used here at the University of North Georgia. Um, within student affairs, we're, we're tying it to our assessment and our goals. So we have assessment and goals that we complete every single year that helps drive the work for the upcoming year. And we will tie each one of those goals to one of the four pillars. And like Dr. Keneally said, we can all find our fit within one or multiple of these pillars. Um, in academic affairs, I know they're using the model to develop the meaning of academic achievement, which is the first pillar that Dr. Keneally suggested. And um, our faculty and students are going to be using, the faculty are going to be using it within the academic affairs strategic plan. Mm -hmm. University-wide, we are going to go around and um, garner buy-in to this model by, by having different presentations, holding different small focus groups within faculty and staff communities, also outside communities. And we've already held uh, a focus group within our student populations, and we'll continue to meet with students and adapt this plan and, and this model as necessary. Things, like I mentioned, are, are definitely changing post-pandemic. Uh, we learned a lot about our upcoming students and what they might be struggling with at the Ask You Retention Symposium. But for this model specifically, student vision is our top priority. So if students cannot buy into this model, then we, we know that we're not approaching this correctly. Uh, we The other thing is we did base this model somewhat off of McClutchy's theory of margin, because like Dr. Keneally said, if a student is not balanced in one area of their life, they might not be able to be in balance in another area. If they're worried about having to pay their car payment or missing, missing a scheduled work day, um, then they can't pay their bills, then they might not be able to pay attention to the lecture that's being provided to them by their professors. So we really tried to think of the whole student experience inside and outside of the classroom to develop this. But like Dr. Keneally suggested, it is unique to each institution. And that's what we're approaching it at right now for the University of North Georgia is we want everybody to have stake in defining what this means and what it looks like at UNG. One of the things that we talked about, obviously, student affairs, academic affairs were partnership in terms of student success. And that's the traditional normal way. People look at how do we work together? You know, academic affairs does the formal curriculum. We do the formative curriculum. But this model, once we want to be able to give the person, the bursar's office, how they play a role. People in financial aid, people, even our groundskeepers or housekeepers, how do they play a role? Because, you know, how they treat the students creates a sense of belonging. How the bursar approaches, you know, individual student situations creates some financial stability. Obviously, a health and well-being is, is a, a very, very broad-based. But uh, again, we do not want it to be seen that that's, that area is dealing with student retention. It, it's like anything else. Marketing institutions, everybody's responsible. Fundraising is everybody's responsible. Retention and student success is everybody's responsible. But we have to help people see how they have a, a, a role in that. Where do they fit in that model? That's where the buy-in has to come. And it's a little bit non-traditional. I, I, Michelle, I don't know if you remember, but way back when in 
in Arkansas, we used to train our housekeepers in recognizing eating disorders and suicidal tendencies. A housekeeper played a role. Yeah, I, it just reminds me when I worked in student conduct, when I interviewed for the job, my vice president then, Dr. Thomas Hill, he asked, so how do you see this work and what's the purpose? And I said to him, every conduct meeting is a retention effort, you know, either hopefully retaining the student in front of you or return re retaining the students around that student. So um, yeah, that it makes a lot of sense. And, and it does sort of feed into all of your pillars feed into one another. So um, I, I appreciate the vision as you, as you've crafted this, and I appreciate that you're in your first year and you're um, about to have those conversations about getting some feedback and reaching out more broadly to the university. Have there been things you've had to adapt or changes you've made along the way or lessons learned that somebody at another institution who's like, yeah, we want to replicate that on our campus, some advice that you might give based on what you've seen so far? I think one thing that is phraseology. You know, I'll go back to the academic achievement versus maybe academic excellence. You know, the words are crafted with very specific ideas in mind. But again, you know, how do you link it to your strategic plan, whether it's an academic strategic plan, university strategic plan? I think that is, is one of the keys, and that's one of the things we, we recommend. Now, part of the uniqueness here at University of North Georgia right now is we're going to go through a presidential change July 1. And... Um, you know, we'll share this model with the new president when they are uh, um, announced. But, you know, as you, we all realize, when you do have a presidential change, priorities may may be adapted. But we're here to help students be successful. Every institution has it. How you do it <laughs> is going to vary. So I think for us, as we talk to other institutions, the reason it's broad enough is because even a small private religious-based institution can fit their areas into this. The sense of belonging and, and uh, engagement for a religiously based institution could look very differently than us as a comprehend regional comprehensive institution. The academic achievement may be a little bit more consistent across all types. Uh, school that's mostly online learning, you know, how do they engage students? How do you create that sense of belonging? Going to be very different than what we do. So again, we didn't want to be so prescriptive. And one of the things that Michelle mentioned that we're going to work with, we're going to do a workshop with uh, student affairs directors and each pillar and we'll put them in small groups to say, okay, how does your, how do you see your area for the career services, whatever to fit into? How do you support this pillar? What, what foundational stuff do you do? And I think that's what institutions have to look at is there's no one size fits all. There's no silver bullet. It's hard work that's based on the values of the institution, based on the goals of the institution, based on the realities of the institution, financially, politically, otherwise. And I'll add to that because I think what I, the biggest thing I've learned from this, as with any change, is it takes time to create um, inclusivity and buy-in to something that is so vital and meaningful to help our students. 
Uh, I think moving slow for me and Dr. Keneally is not very natural, but if we move slow and help people to understand their fit in the model versus pushing it on them, that they will be more able to recognize where they fit into the model um, and how this does embrace our students and, and their unique needs. Um, and we've said this throughout the podcast today. If we ask every single higher education professional what how they define student success, we would probably get a million different answers. And it's so subjective based on who you're asking and in what context. But defining these pillars has allowed us to pay, pay careful attention to the articulation of each pillar and how each pillar leads to or supports student success. So it's not only defining what those look like based on literature review and best practices, but it's also how the pillar will support the student now um, in, in the short term and in the long term. And I think the other thing is change requires curiosity. And it this, this model does allow us as practitioners to be curious. And, and that's that's a good a good thing to do as we explore the students that we serve. Let's become curious about who they are. Let's learn who they are today. They it does look different today than it did five, 10 years ago. Um, you know, a lot of things are happening with with post-pandemic that we expected to happen five to 10 years from now, but it's already happening, like the enrollment declines and the enrollment shifts. Um, and the diversity shifts and this transfer decline, they're all here now. But how do we recognize how these pillars with each institution of higher education can provide resources to enhance a student's overall experience, whether that's inside the classroom and outside the classroom, but absolutely for, for both. Um, there, and there's a pragmatic, you know, uh, yes. obviously, <laughs> you know, the, the, um, resources, budgets. It really provides a framework on where are we going to put our resources? Does it match up with our retention initiatives? Does it match up with our student success initiatives? Because we don't have enough resources just to do everything. So it really does. Secondly, as, as Michelle mentioned, there is an enrollment. You know, the enrollment cliff is, is coming. It's here. So it's eight times more expensive to re-recruit a student than to retain a student. So there's some very pragmatic pieces besides obviously the moral obligation we have to help students be successful, we it's a model that can be helpful for an institution to um, to aim their resources for the maximum return on investment. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Michelle, if it would be helpful to you. I could share real quickly the the uh, visual that we're using for four pillars. Well, let me, yeah. I'm not the, the tech was here. Oh, hostess, I can't screen share. Uh, there you go. Okay. Let's see what I am. All right. Give me a second here. Uh, and while you're pulling it up, um, mm -hmm. if you can send it to me electronically, I'll post, if you're comfortable sharing it as like an attachment, I'll post it when I post the episode so people have access to it. Okay, let me... All right, how do I get to my main screen? Okay. Okay. Let me try to do something. Hang on one second. All right. 
I popped it in the chat. Oh, yep, I got it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, okay. You got it. Here's the. Uh, I do have it now. Okay. But. Does that come on? Yeah, it's there. Perfect. Well, that's how we look at it. And I give credit to my youngest daughter for the graphics. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, all right. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And again, I think visualizing the work, it looks, we all do it in a different way, but actually being able to see it and pull those pieces together, it, um, for me, it sparks more creativity and yeah. people can start to think about, oh yeah, this, and even visually um, for listeners, the way the pillars are designed, they're supported by different pieces. And I think that lends itself to the model, which is, this isn't one thing, this is multiple things. And to what mm -hmm. you all have been discussing, those things are going to look different depending on the functional area where you're working. Right. So they feel, I that. they feel noticed too. We, we made sure the pillars were equal. Mm -hmm. yes. We didn't want one to be larger than the other because they all are in, an important piece of the picture. Well, and I think one of you made the point earlier, if you're strong in three of the four, you're still really at risk of not being successful because you need all of those pieces to mm -hmm. um, persist and find your your levels of success. So one of the things, and you all alluded to assessing your model a little bit earlier, but I'm interested if you would add more about how you're doing that and particularly the student input. How are you, are you identifying populations? Is it an open call? What is that work going to look like as you move ahead? Go ahead, Michelle. All right. Yes, we haven't gotten too far into the assessment of the model quite yet. And But of course, it's going to require a continuous cycle of evaluation to ensure that the model is speaking to the students who are on our campuses today. Mm -hmm. So we will consistently be evaluating how we defined it. Obviously, those definitions will probably stick as a system, but we need to make sure that the, the support measures under each of those pillars are adapted to meet the students of today, which changes constantly. Um, so we'll, we will evaluate the impact through qualitative and quantitative data, of course, and through the learning that we're experiencing as we do develop this model. So in that first, second, and third person learning um, through our individual learning, our group learning, so what we're learning within student affairs and academic affairs about it, but then, of course, the system level learning. So how is this impacting our students and our institution and our strategic plans? Um, and that will hopefully lead to bridging gaps um, in our current student success model, which is somewhat siloed, and it'll create opportunities to make an impact 
on our students and our university. Um, you asked about the student focus groups. We have currently held one student focus group and the purpose of that focus group was really to help the students have a voice in what student success is defined as. So it was an open call. We sent an email to all 18,000 of our students and left flyers on different um, postings and, and all of the buildings. And we ended up having about 20 students attend that focus group. It was a virtual focus group and we did have it led by one of our student workers so that we were, our, our approach is that we hoped that the students who attended the focus group would be a lot more willing to share with a peer versus an administrator. Um, so the so we did ask how they would define student success, what are resources that they wish they knew about sooner, um, how, what would they call student success. Uh, many of them identified the word, the verbiage student success as an administrative word. While, while we thought that maybe they would catch on to that phrase pretty easy and that they would think, oh, that's to help me be a, um, a better student. But um, unfortunately, they did not feel that way. So we're coming up with things of how, how we can define that so students know exactly what the phrase means and, and how they can be in tuned with that themselves. Um, but it was an open call. We had students from all different types of backgrounds. We had non-traditional students, first-generation students. So that was really helpful to hear their perspectives and how their needs are very different than our non-traditional students, which we know but hearing from these student narratives and these unheard voices that we hadn't heard from before, we weren't looking for top leaders at the organization. We were looking for students who we don't hear from often. And we ended up getting a lot of those students in the room. So it was it was super um, genuine and, and helpful for us to help respond to this question of what is student success at UNG. Part of it too, is you asked about assessment, um, yeah, obviously you track graduation rates, retention rates, but as we've redefined our withdrawal process, it's more intentional. Uh, Michelle and some others have worked at really analyzed on an annual, but uh, not even a semesterly basis. Why are students leaving? Mm -hmm. You know, it's very easy when a student withdraws, ah, I can't afford it, whatever. We have a care team. We have our BIT team, behavioral intervention team, really looking at the data on why students are withdrawn from the university to hopefully see where are we missing, what are we doing. Uh, but that is part of the assessment. Obviously, we want to retain students and we want to help them graduate. But you can't do that if you don't understand the reasons why. And the days of letting students just depart without any uh, intervention is gone. Um, uh, it's easier that way, especially post-pandemic when they didn't have to see anybody and they could just withdraw from the institution. This requires a little bit more intervention. And luckily, we have people or young professionals in student affairs and academic affairs. This is, this is important to them on how do we, uh, what are we missing or what are we doing? But it's more intentional and we have more uh, data on excused absences or um, I forget the term now, but emergency withdrawal that, you know. Hardship withdrawal. Say it again. Hardship withdrawal. Thank you. So that's why Michelle, you know, my <laughs> conscience. <laughs> so those are some of the other ways we're going to assess. All right. Um, so 
I love that we're getting to put out information about this through the podcast. And I'm curious, have you had a chance to share this in other settings, whether presentations or even, I would say, relational conversations with people other places? We've had, you know, when we had the opportunity to go to the Ask You workshop. We had, Michelle and I both had some private conversations with regard to um, some of the other people there. I did have an opportunity to talk to Ask You, and Michelle's going to be following up with them as well about uh, them promoting this. Uh, we have an opportunity working with uh, um, some other organizations that maybe putting together a an article on description on and really aimed at not just the practitioner, but aimed at the leaders, the board members, those type of individuals um, to help them see the, uh, the, the 30,000 foot view of this and how to, they can use that within their own institution. Great. On top of that, we'll also do internal presentations to our, our university stakeholders at different professional development workshops um, to our faculty and, and during our, um, what's it called? Faculty um, Learning Academy sort, sort teach of thing. Teaching Learning Center. Thank you. <laughs> and then, of course, um, my staff has a lot of professional presentations submitted to different um, conferences that are nationally occurring. Awesome. Well, and at some point, to your comment earlier, you'll have a chance to present it to the new president and yeah. bring them kind of into the loop. So, well, yeah. this has been yeah. great. I want to extend an invitation. So as you start to collect feedback, if you want to come back on and talk about, hey, here's what we learned, how it's informing what we're going to be doing in the future, the door is open. So you all let me know um, if you want to talk more about it. That would be great. So awesome. Well, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the last question that I have is sort of the catch-all. So what else should I have asked or what other things would you like to share or highlight um, as we start to kind of wrap up? Michelle, I'll let you go first. The first thing that comes to mind is I was once told to leave my heart out of my work. And I just want to say that leading with my heart is the only way that I've gotten to where I am today. Um, seeing the students through the eyes of empathy is different than leading with strategy, although we do need a, a good balance of both. But I think heart is in within the notion of equity and integrity of our work. And how do we become the best practitioners um, I feel like we're always looking for best practices, but maybe if we just try to become the best version of ourselves, it will come naturally. Um, and of course, besides just using your heart, use research and data to shape and inform policy and interventions, which is exactly what we're doing when it comes to, to this approach to building this, this vision and this model of the four pillars of student success. And I think also go back to, you know, we do have a moral obligation to help students be successful. And I think sometimes boards and others, we get very on the numbers. Oh, we're recruiting students, what blah, blah, blah. You know, there is a moral obligation and student success is more than just what it looks like on a spreadsheet. 
it really is uh, an opportunity to impact uh, society. It's an opportunity to impact uh, the greater good. And I think as we keep that in mind, a uh, piece of advice that was given to me many years ago uh, was if you keep the students as your main focus, 99% of times you're going to make the right decision. And sometimes you are island upon yourself. Sometimes you're the only one um, expressing a certain uh, viewpoint, but we all are here to commit to the students to be successful in so many ways. And once we do accept them, how do we help them? As long as they do their part <laughs> as well. It's, it's, it's not, we do it for them. It's working with them. And I think Michelle is exactly right in terms of, um, you got to put your heart into it. And, but how does your heart dictate the strategy? Well, and I think, so we're recording this as we're moving toward the end of April, the end of the, the spring term. I think it's important to remember that because we do get worn down and sort of trying to check off boxes and respond mm -hmm. to email. But it to be reminded about the heart, about the moral obligation, that the humanity of the work that we do. I really appreciate that. And the timing is, at least for me, spot sure. on for those comments. But, um, well, I I just can't thank you enough. I appreciate the chance to have the conversation. I look forward for opportunities to learn more or, again, maybe revisit the, the topic in the not-too-distant future. Um, kind of on the note of your, your last comments, my last question for you is, What's something that's giving you hope right now? If that's in the work, beyond the work, what what's your hoped for thing? Michelle, Michelle and I talked about that just this morning over coffee. I guess for me, and, and I'm in a different point in my career, obviously, than Michelle. Um, the hope for me is the dedication of the, the young professional. I don't care if you're in student affairs, academic affairs. The, the young professionals have chosen higher education. That's hopeful, you know. There's ebbs and flows in higher education. You know, we were doing budget cuts 10, 15 years ago. We were doing, you know, it wasn't the pandemic, it was something else. So there's ebbs and flows. But look at the young professionals who are truly committed, truly embrace what we're trying to accomplish in the bigger picture. With the caveat that they're looking at from a more innovative, creative way. How do we use today's technology? How do we use innovative programs? You know, that's to me is hopeful because, again, being in, in this for over 40 years, um, I remember when we didn't have email. So, uh, and how these young professionals are using that. The other thing I think to me that is very hopeful is there's a, a desire for a greater sense of balance within our higher education community. It's not everybody's just working their, themselves to death. A greater balance, and I think that's something that is healthy for our profession. I think that's something that's healthy for uh, individuals, and and I'm really glad to see where it's going from that perspective. And you know, when I do eventually you know, hang it up, it's I feel very confident that the work of student affairs professions will continue, and because we are equal partners with our academic colleagues, we have to remember that. Right. I like your notion, Dr. Keneally, of balance. And I think we need to discover as leaders how we lead our, our staff to achieving balance. Mm -hmm. 
it's like uh, Michelle mentioned earlier, we are in a situation where we could be easily burnt out. Higher education is, is a challenging career to be in right now. But how, how can we as leaders of this institution help people to maintain that balance? So that spoke to me. Uh, the other thing that brings me hope is just walking around campus and seeing our students in a different light than behind the numbers that I look at all the time. And seeing them smile, seeing them have hope. Uh, of course, you know, you run into some students that might be having a challenge at that moment, but being able to sit down with them and have a discussion to bring them hope and have them have a greater mindset towards their, their future is also helpful. And I'm really, I feel a, a high level of gratitude to work for a institution that does give students the opportunity to have educ to, to get an education. Whereas some um, some students might not have had the opportunity and we we are able to admit students to, to give them the opportunity to learn and, and fulfill their dreams as they desire. Um, and I just want to see the, the future of higher education change um, so that I can see my, my children come to the higher education that I want it to be. Well, thank you for that. Again, your comments just make me think about the humanity of the work, whether that's care for one another as practitioners and faculty, whether it is care for students, um, and even the model itself, it is a holistic model. And um, I think too often we can get caught up in the critique and <laughs> forget about the care. And again, you need both, mm -hmm. but it's it's nice to have that care centered. So I just want to thank each of you one more time, uh, Jim Keneally and Michelle Eaton. It has been wonderful talking with you this morning. And I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for your time. Thank you, and, and good luck to the rest of the year. Absolutely. Thank you. Right. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA, and we thank them for their support. SAXA encourages all listeners to think about the innovative work and research you are each doing, and please consider submitting a concurrent or poster program proposal for the 2023 SAXA conference in Atlanta, Georgia, from November 4th through the 6th, 2023, nudge nudge to my guests today another <laughs> place to share your work um, but during the conference you will be able to learn and share about innovative and reimagined reimagined solutions new research and current trends that best address practices in collaboration partnerships and experiential learning the call for programs went out on march 7th so please consider a presentation on topics such as accessibility, affordability, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, and a variety of other topics. The deadline for submissions will be Friday, June 30th. For more information, visit the SACSA website. And finally, as we close, I would like to leave you with a quote. Today's quote is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. All life is an experiment. The more experiments you make, the better. Thanks to each of you for listening. Again, my name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day.